Hello, this is Monica, and this is Remembering the Misremembered. Sunday is gloomy. My hours are slumberless. Dearest the shadows I live with are numberless. Little white flowers will never awaken you, not where the black coat of sorrow has taken you. Angels have no thought of ever returning you. Would they be angry if I thought of joining you? Gloomy Sunday, verse 1 of Gloomy Sunday. Can a song really cause people to commit suicide and bring about general feelings of hopelessness? Music is indeed powerful. It expresses the deepest sentiments of the human soul. In 1933, a struggling Hungarian songwriter named Rezo Ceres released his most popular song, a song known in English as Gloomy Sunday. I will not attempt to pronounce the Hungarian version. I am by no means fluent or even close to being fluent in Hungarian. But Gloomy Sunday is blamed or credited with an unusual string of suicides. It is even nicknamed the Hungarian suicide song. Now Rezo Ceres was born Rudolf Rudy Spitzer in Budapest, Hungary on November 3rd, 1899. His mother was Blanka Spitzer. He was born into poverty, and being Jewish, he was put into a labor camp during World War II. After surviving the labor camp, he worked in the theater and in the circus. Rezo was a piano player and a trapeze artist. He suffered an injury which affected one of his hands and forced him to play piano with one hand, and he started writing songs. Rezo spent time in Paris and partnered up with a friend who was a lyricist and a poet. His name, and I hope I'm saying it correctly, was Laszlo Javor. Rezo and Laszlo put together a song that spoke to a certain hopelessness that was in the air at the time. But for the people who became familiar with it, it seemed to be a commentary on the hopelessness of love lost. There was a story that Rezo composed the melody to the Hungarian suicide song after his girlfriend either left him or killed herself, depending on who's telling the story. The song was recorded by Pal Calmer, singing it in 1934. And I will from now on <clears throat> call it the glo uh, Gloomy Sunday. The song slowly began to gain notice and it became connected to a sudden outbreak of suicides all over Hungary. A teenage girl drowned herself while clutching web pages of fading lyrics to Gloomy Sunday. A businessman killed himself and left behind a suicide note, quoting some of the lyrics to Gloomy Sunday. A woman overdosed. She had been listening to Gloomy Sunday all day long. And this is not even the half of it, not even close. It is worth mentioning that Hungary is considered to be the world's suicide capital, with a large percentage of its citizens killing themselves every year. It's estimated that, that there were about 17 Hungarian suicides that were tied to Gloomy Sunday at this time. The situation was dire enough to eventually see the song getting banned in Hungary. People in America and in England took note of the song as well. Various songwriters tried translating Gloomy Sunday, 
but Sam M. Lewis, a Tin, Pally, Tin Pan Alley songwriter, came up with the most popular one. Hal Kemp recorded the first English version of the song in 1936. Paul Robeson also recorded a version, but its lyrics were by Desmond Carter, and he recorded his version also in 1936. Now, the second verse goes like this. Gloomy is Sunday with shadows. I spent it all. My heart and I have decided to end it all. Soon there will be candles and prayers that are sad, I know. Let them not weep. Let them know that I'm glad to go. Death is no dream, for in death I'm caressing you. With the last breath of my soul, I will be blessing you. Sam Lewis added a third, more hopeful verse. Dreaming. I was only dreaming. I wake and I find you asleep in the deep of my heart, dear. Billie Holiday recorded the definitive version of Gloomy Sunday in 1941. And we know that Billie Holiday could sing the alphabet song and make you want to jump off the nearest bridge. Love her, but very depressing voice. The bodies started dropping in America. Even with the suicide spreading, Gloomy Sunday was never officially banned in the land of the free and the home of the brave. Gloomy Sunday was banned in England due to the fact that the depressing ditty was so upsetting to the public. England continued playing instrumental versions, and the ban lasted until 2002, the ban on the lyricized version. Every time we hear of a song causing mayhem or tragedy, and we've seen these accusations hurled at some heavy metal and rap songs, we are in some small way recalling Gloomy Sunday's legacy and the power of music to inspire us to do good or evil. Gloomy Sunday is a standard and has been recorded by numerous artists over the decades, like Ray Charles, Elvis Costello, and Marianne Faithful, to name but a few. All of this in spite of, or because of, it being tied allegedly to more than 200 suicides. As far as the fate of the songwriter Rez Osiris, he seemed to have not done much of note after the popularity of Gloomy Sunday. He married a woman named Hanny Nadler in 1934. He was loyal to his Hungarian homeland, and he had spent time in Paris, but he wouldn't come to America to claim his Gloomy Sunday royalties, and I guess they couldn't be mailed. Maybe he saw the royalties as blood money. Neither he nor his co-writer, Laszlo Javor, was happy about the song's dark legacy. Whatever the case, Rezo lived the rest of his life in poverty. He worked as a pianist at a restaurant in his hometown, a place that catered to bohemian types. He never produced another hit record. He was not happy that his song was associated with worldwide suicides and unhappiness like I mentioned before. And even the lyricist, Laszlo Javor, also felt that the suicides were a high price to pay for a success. Rezo Ceres found himself depressed, and the success of Gloomy Sunday only added to his misery. On January 11, 1968, 68-year-old Rezo Ceres committed suicide. When jumping out of a window didn't kill him, he choked himself to death with a wire in the hospital later. Yes, the man who wrote the Hungarian suicide song, also known as Gloomy Sunday, also committed suicide. 
some people do not believe in the spate of suicides. It could be an urban legend or maybe a wild publicity stunt to spike record sales. Or maybe the stories were spread in order to actually encourage suicides. It is a strange, strange world. So who really knows? We only know what has been reported. If even half or a quarter of the suicides really happened, what could the explanation for contagious suicides possibly be? One explanation that has been advanced is the notion that Gloomy Sunday is written in the minor key, creating a heightened degree of sensory dissonance. This sensory dissonance is opposed to the sensory consonants in the major key, connected to sad feelings. It directly goes straight to the medial prefrontal cortex. Even with this being considered as a possibility, there has to be more to it. Gloomy Sunday taps into a negative energy for some people. It would likely only affect people to the degree of taking their lives if they are already deeply unhappy and perhaps already suicidal. I must say that I have seen pictures of Rezo's arrest, and I must say also that they are truly chilling. His appearance itself could spark deep feelings of sadness and perhaps even hopelessness. This is a man whose life was very difficult, and he seemed sad to the soul. All I can say is listen to Gloomy Sunday at your own risk. When we're sad, we do tend to gravitate towards sad songs. We want to be assured that we are not alone. We really need to find something that uplifts us and inspires us to do something good for ourselves and maybe somebody else. Remember that suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. You matter. Find somebody to talk to and trust that your life has purpose. Now I'm going to be moving on to another story. It's a story about the man himself, a true innovator, a doo-wop pioneer. And he didn't create doo-wop, but he certainly innovated it and influenced many with his fluid, high-pitched vocals. He was a major influence on singers like Smokey Robinson, Jackie Wilson, and many, many more. We are remembering the man himself, Mr. Clyde McFadder, the original drifter. For those who listened to my Rudy Lewis 27 Club episode, I did talk about Clyde McFadder a little bit. He's yet another brick in the building of soul music and rock and roll that doesn't get a lot of mention, although he is a true innovator and is very accomplished. Okay, so Clyde Lindsley McFadder was born in Haiti an area of Durham, North Carolina, on November 15, 1932. Now, there's some discrepancy about the year. Some biographies claim he was born in 1933 or 1934. But his tombstone says 1932, and his daughter also says that that's the year, so that's the one that we'll accept for this story. But anyway, Clyde was one of seven children of George McFadder. FYI, the name McFadder is believed to be a Scottish name. You can take that for what it's worth. But George was a Baptist minister, and his wife was either named Beulah or Eva. There's, you know, some question there. But anyway, Clyde was singing in church at the age of five. Within just a few years, Clyde was performing as a soloist in the church's choir, displaying a clear and powerful soprano voice. 
Now, I guess now is as good a time as any to bring up the F word, falsetto. Falsetto is defined as follows. A method of voice production used by male singers, particularly tenors, to sing notes higher than their normal range. A singer using falsetto, a voice or sound that is unusually or unnaturally high. Okay, with that being said, I think it is incorrect to classify Clyde McFadder as a falsetto singer. He uh, sounds to me like a natural high tenor. Philip Bailey of Earth, Wind & Fire fame is a falsetto singer because that high voice that he uses is above and beyond where his voice is naturally placed. It's an example of great talent to be able to do that, but I think Clyde's high tenor was natural. I think it was his natural voice. Anyway, the McFadder family relocated to Teaneck, New Jersey. Clyde was enrolled at Chelsea High School. He worked odd jobs, including a stint as a clerk at a grocery store before being promoted as the store's manager. Clyde started a group called the Mount Lebanon Singers after his family moved to New York. This was a gospel group, by the way and Clyde did graduate high school. He continued working at the store as a manager. Clyde McFadder won the Amateur Night Contest at the Apollo Theater in 1950. Not long after this, Billy Ward and his dominoes got their hands on Clyde. Now let me tell you a little bit about Billy Ward. He was born Robert L. Williams and he had been a child piano prodigy. He was part of the Coast Guard Artillery Choir while doing military service. He studied music in Chicago and even at New York's Juilliard School of Music. Very few black people studied at Juilliard, so he was really a heavyweight. He even worked as a vocal coach and arranger on Broadway, so he was no slouch and new talent when he witnessed it. Billy Ward wanted to cash in on the male vocal group trend that was all the rage at the time. Billy Ward recruited tenor Charlie White, baritone Joe Lamont, bass singer Bill Brown, and lead tenor Clyde McFadder. Renee Hall recommended them to Ralph Bass, or Bass, who worked for Federal Records, and Federal Records was a subsidiary of King Records. At first, they were called the Q's, but upon signing to Federal, they were renamed the Dominoes, or Billy Ward and his Dominoes. Because Billy Ward's name was out front, some people assumed that he was the group's lead singer. He was not. Clyde was present for the recording of 60 Minute Man, a sexually explicit tune that Ralph Bass produced. Bill Brown sang lead on this tune, and Billy Ward actually wrote it with Rose Marks. Released in 1951, this was one of the first R&B songs to cross over to the pop charts. It was crucial in the shaping of rock and roll, and it was also banned by some radio stations because the lyrics are racy. The song that really introduced Clyde McFadder's vocals was Do Something For Me. Clyde's vocal is strongly steeped in gospel, and it's very heavy on melisma. It was released also in 1951. Other hit songs McFadder recorded with the Dominoes include Have Mercy Baby and a bizarre song called The Bells that features him singing of his loved one's death, his own death, and he goes on with this uh, sobbing, crying sound. It's a strange song. 
Clyde McFadder, who was sometimes passed off as Clyde Ward, Billy's little brother, made little money as a domino, about $100 a week or whatever was left after motel bills, food, and taxes. Billy Ward achieved his goal of creating a group to rival the success of other groups that were named after birds, like the Ravens and others. Clyde left the Dominoes in 1953, but not before helping to train his replacement, the future Mr. Excitement himself, Jackie Wilson. Clyde McFadder is credited with taking the Ink Spot's simple major chord harmonies, drenching them in call and response patterns, and sang as if he were back in church. In doing so, he created a revolutionary musical style from which pop music will never recover, and that is a direct quote. Jackie Wilson spoke of being in love with Clyde's voice, and you can clearly hear Clyde's influence in Jackie's singing. Other students of Clyde's, whether directly or indirectly, include Benny King, Marv Johnson, Sammy Turner, and Smokey Robinson, who I mentioned earlier, and even Patsy Cline uh, was influenced by um, Clyde McFadder. And uh, she recorded a song, I think it's called Something You Want to Know or something like that. Um, that uh, or I, I can't remember the name of the song. But anyway, you can look it up. Patsy Cline did a cover of a, a Clyde McFadder song or a song that he did when he was with the Dominoes. And, um, you know, you can hear her kind of imitating some of the stuff that Clyde was doing. But anyway, Clyde McFadder publicly praised Billy Ward as a musician and mentor, but the two men did not get along privately. Ahmed Erdogan and Jerry Wexler, the founders of Atlantic Records, saw the Dominoes perform, and they were disappointed to learn that Clyde McFadder was no longer part of the group. Billy Ward told them, I fired his ass. They found Clyde and signed him to Atlantic Records on one condition. He had to form a group of his own. Clyde went about the work of putting together a group that he called the Drifters. The Drifters initially consisted of old members of the Mount Lebanon Singers. On such hits as Money, Honey, Such a Night, Honey Love, White Christmas, and what you're going to do, they were called Clyde McFadder and the Drifters. Their first two singles were billed this way. Then the Drifters featuring Clyde McFadder. White Christmas has been credited to the Drifters featuring Bill Pinckney and Clyde McFadder as these are the two lead singers on that particular record. Clyde had organized the Drifters in partnership with George Treadwell, who was married to singer Sarah Vaughn. 1954 brought big changes. This is the year that Clyde McFadder was drafted into the military. He was stationed in the States and thus was able to continue recording with the Drifters. But when he was released from the service, he left the Drifters, which was part of his plan all along. He had had enough of the group thing. Unfortunately, Clyde sold his share of the Drifters to George Treadwell, which hurt the ability of the group to profit financially. The Drifters became what they are known as, a revolving door with lineup after lineup after lineup, making $100 a week again, taking what's left over after expenses, and no royalties worth speaking of. 
the solo stylings of Clyde McFadder with mixed pop, R&B, and rock and roll, and opened doors for Elvis, Sam Cooke, and all the rest. Clyde kicked things off with a duet with Ruth Brown called Love Has Joined Us Together, a top 10 hit in 1955. And apparently love really did join the two of them together in real life, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. But in August, he recorded Seven Days, which hit number two on the R&B charts. It was an attempt to cross over. A number of white artists found great success with cover versions of this song, which was common back then. Treasure of Love did better. It topped the R&B chart and also made it to number 16 on the pop chart. Just to Hold My Hand was an R&B top 10 hit and made it to number 30 pop with Long Lonely Nights. Topping R&B and making it into the pop top 50. Clyde McFadder released two albums in one year for Atlantic, something that was unheard of for a black artist. They released Clyde McFadder and the Drifters and then Love Ballads. Clyde was hoping to follow in the footsteps of Nat King Cole or Eddie Arnold, and he wanted to go toe-to-toe with Frank Sinatra. But then the big hit came, A Lover's Question, which was co-written by Brooke Benton. He followed with three more singles that charted but didn't make the R&B top ten. He produced a self-titled album called Clyde. He produced one last hit for Atlantic called Lovey Dovey. Another Brooke Benton song, You Went Back on Your Word, was released as well. Clyde's contract with Atlantic ran out, and he decided to sign with MGM Records, who offered him more money. Let's Try Again was an R&B hit for Clyde's new label. I Told Myself a Lie and Think Me a Kiss were minor pop hits in 1960. Clyde started having some issues around this time. He went to Mercury Records. All this type of label hopping is not a good thing. Tata did well on the pop chart. So did I Never Knew. Lover Please, written by Billy Swan of I Can Help fame, hit the pop top 10 in 1962. But Clyde was becoming erratic and unreliable thanks to a growing dependency on alcohol. Music tastes were changing. And Clyde, despite how talented he was, was having trouble keeping up with the changing trends. He was watching the drifters and acts who had followed in his footsteps surpass him. Clyde had a couple more hit singles, Deep in the Heart of Harlem and Crying Won't Help You Now. There was also a live album, Live at the Apollo in 1964, which featured his major hits. For the next few years... He recorded with minor record labels but was unable to produce a hit. He was on the downward trajectory and headed for a big fall. Bill Pinckney, Clyde's former Drifters cohort, started leading a group of Drifters singing songs that Clyde had helped to popularize during his tenure with the group. They were huge in England. Clyde McFadder himself moved to England for a while and did receive recognition and gain new fans. Clyde did well there for a while, performing in clubs, but he was still struggling with alcoholism and depression, which caused him to be unreliable. Clyde moved back to America and released an album called Welcome Home, which wasn't successful. He told a reporter in an interview that he had no fans, which was far from the truth, but it was what he believed. The kind of help Clyde McFadder needed 
possibly therapy for his alcoholism and depression, was not encouraged in the black community back then. It probably wasn't even available, so Clyde continued sinking to rise no more. On June 13, 1972, 39-year-old Clyde McFadder died in his sleep. His heart, liver, and kidneys were shot. They quit on him as a direct result of his chronic alcoholism. And it's also been said that he was diabetic. I don't know if that's true, but he did suffer with alcoholism. He died in the Bronx, New York, where he had been living with Bertha M. Reed, a traveling companion who was with him as he attempted to make a career comeback. Clyde McFadder is buried at Washington Memorial Park in Parasmus, New Jersey, sometimes called George Washington Memorial Park. Clyde McFadder leaves behind an interesting legacy. He holds the distinction of being the first person to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice. And anybody who's uh, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame more than once is now called a member of the Clyde McFadder group, association, or club. In 1987, he was inducted as a solo artist. In 1998, he was inducted as a member of the Drifters. He was honored with the 29 cents United States postage stamp back in 1993. He was inducted into the North Carolina Music Hall of Fame in 2009. His daughter, Deborah McFadder, served as chairperson of the board of directors. Late in her life, legendary singer Ruth Brown confessed to a love affair with Clyde McFadder, and she admitted that he was the father of her son, Ron. Ron went on to tour with the group that's named after his father, Clyde McFadder's Drifters. Unfortunately, some of Clyde McFadder's music perished in the 2008 Universal Fire. Now, I want to go back to what I had said earlier about uh, Patsy Cline uh, falling under the influence of Clyde McFadder. Now, the song that I'm talking about is called Someday You'll Want Me to Want You. And you can hear Clyde's influence in Patsy's, uh, in her vocal. Now, Clyde was also a songwriter, and he wrote a song called Lucille, and it was recorded while he was with the Drifters. But anyway, Clyde McFadder is remembered as one of the greatest, most influential singers of all time, which he should be. He deserves to be remembered. Um, That's why he's on Remembering the Misremembered, because he doesn't get the attention that he deserves. Uh, Like so many other people, we only think about um, uh, Ray Charles or Sam Cooke when talking about some of the builders of soul music, but we need to broaden our scope and include some other names like Clyde McFadder. I'm Monica and this has been Remembering the Misremembered. Hello, hello, hello. This is Monica and this is Remembering the Misremembered. And today we are going to talk about a woman who is probably not as forgotten as some of the other people that I talk about. Um, I don't think she's forgotten at all. Um, She's only been dead uh, less than a decade. 
and um, she really had a very, very prolific career. I'm talking about Etta James. This is Etta James, the saga of Miss Peaches. Etta James was one of the most prolific singers to ever stand behind a microphone. Gospel, R&B, doo-wop, soul, jazz, you name it, and Etta sang it with devastating passion, verve, and most of all with soul. Despite living a life mired in drug addiction, which led to her ill health and trouble with the law, Etta James miraculously managed to have a career spanning the mid-1950s until well into the 2000s. Really the 2010s. As far as black women with top 10 hits during that time period, only Dinah Washington and Ruth Brown eclipsed her. Of course, Dinah Washington died in 1963. Etta James was a true soul survivor who lived long enough to relay her personal narrative, penning Rage to Survive, one of the greatest, most candid, and raw autobiographies ever written, period. She was born James Etta Hawkins. I wonder where her mother got that name, James Etta. James Etta Hawkins on January 25th, 1938, to 14-year-old Dorothy Hawkins, a black teenager, and an unknown white man. James Etta always believed that her father was the legendary pool player, Rudolph Wanderon, also known as Minnesota Fats, but this was never proven. In fact, his widow has claimed that Fats was infertile due to prostate troubles and that there's no way he would have fathered a child and not taken care of her. But who really knows? Dorothy was rarely at home and spent a lot of time fraternizing with various men. James Etta nicknamed her mother the Mystery Lady because she was so often M.I.A. James Etta found herself living in a series of foster homes. The most impactful foster parents were Dorothy's friends James and Lulu, a.k.a. Sarge and Mama Lou. James Etta's music teacher, James Earl Hines, used to punch her in the chest to ensure that she sang properly from the diaphragm. James Etta's big, powerful voice was supposedly strengthened by being punched in the chest by this grown man as a little girl. Very unorthodox and highly disturbing. And her foster father, Sarge, was also abusive to her. He would get drunk, wake her up in the middle of the night, and force her to sing for his friends. If she didn't sing to his standards, she faced a beating. Of course, all of this caused psychological problems for her her whole life. She developed a bedwetting problem as a kid and anxiety about performing as an adult. Her foster mother, Mama Lou, died when James Etta was 12. And I want to mention that uh, James Etta was a musical prodigy. She started singing gospel from the age of five, and she was even on the radio as a little girl. So anyway... Dorothy and James Etta moved together to San Francisco in the Fillmore District. James Etta was a child who would run away from home. More than once, uh, Etta James, who she later became, referred to herself as a juvenile delinquent. She drank hard, ditched school, and ran with the gang. The gang became a singing group called the Creolettes, allegedly because of them all being light-skinned, but according to pictures, James Etta was the only light-skinned one. One day, one of the girls 
met the godfather of rhythm and blues himself, Johnny Otis. Otis. And she told James Etta, who was skeptical. That is, until James Etta talked to Johnny Otis herself on the phone. Johnny arranged for the Creoettes to catch a cab and audition for him at a hotel. They sang three songs. And he was impressed. He asked her how old she was. 18, she lied. He saw through it and told her to go home and get written permission from her mother to record, travel, etc. James Etta went home, wrote the letter of permission herself, packed her bags, and prepared to record and go on the road. Johnny Otis took the girls under his wing. He changed the Creolette's name to the Peaches, and Peaches was James Etta's nickname. He also transposed James Etta's name to the more palatable Etta James. Johnny recruited Etta and the girls to record an answer record to Hank Ballard's Work With Me Annie. Eddie recorded a song, Etta recorded a song called The Wallflower, which was released in 1955 and featured vocals from Richard Berry, who was the male voice on the song. Etta was credited as the song's co-writer. The song's name had been changed from Roll With Me Henry because that title sounded too sexually explicit. It reached the top of the rhythm and blues charts. The Peaches were signed to Modern Records, and the success of the song opened the door for them to be hired as Little Richard's opening act. Predictably, the song brought crossover drama into their lives when pop singer Georgia Gibson did a cover record. It, of course, went to number one pop, and that infuriated Etta. Etta lived with Johnny Otis's family for a time. She was making $10 per performance then, and he placed her $14,000 in royalties from the success of The Wallflower in a trust until Etta was 21. At some point, Etta performed on a bill with Elvis at a Memphis club, and she talked about how great his manners were. Etta sang backup vocals on Jesse Belvin's Good Night, My Love, Pleasant Dreams. She worked with Alan Toussaint and the top-notch New Orleans musicians of that time. She recorded an answer to Muddy Waters' I Am a Woman. Or I'm a, his, his song was I'm a Man, and her song was W-O-M-A-N. And she also sang a gospel song with Sister Rosetta Thorpe called Strange Things Happening. She also recorded a song called The Pickup, so she was very busy in these years. Etta left the Peaches and achieved a hit record with Good Rockin' Daddy. She was signed to Chess Records in 1960. She sang backup on the Chuck Berry songs Almost Grown and Back in the USA. She duetted with her boyfriend Moonglow and Marvin Gaye discoverer Harvey Fuqua on If I Can't Have You and Spoonful. And speaking of boyfriends, Etta also reportedly dated blues man B.B. King when she was 16 and he was in his 20s. The founder of Chess Records, Leonard Chess, actually had a vision for Etta James. He clearly wanted to build Etta as a classic chanteuse. Her voice was often surrounded by lush orchestration. My Dearest Darling is the first song that Etta recorded in that vein. It went to number five R&B. In late 1960, Etta James released her debut album, At Last. By early 1961, Etta released the single, which became her signature song. 
When most people hear the name Etta James, At Last is the first song that comes to mind. Surprisingly, Etta's version of At Last hit number two R&B and number 47 pop. So it wasn't this huge smash right out of the gate. But it goes to show that, yes, the charts are important <clears throat> when a song first comes out. But it's no indication of a song's longevity and how memorable it will be in the long run. She followed that song up with Trust Me. The last album also features I Just Want to Make Love to You and A Sunday Kind of Love. These two songs became classics as well. The album is extremely diverse with Etta singing a number of different genres. R&B, jazz, doo-wop, the blues. And there was a sophomore album the second time around, which was released that same year, 1960. More hits followed, including Something's Got a Hold on Me, number four R&B and top 40 pop, and Stop the Wedding, number six on the R&B chart. A couple years later, a live album was released with the song Pushover. Etta had started taking hard drugs in the early 1960s, and this affected her reliability. She was also crushed by the passing of Leonard Chess. She spent many years at Chess Records but only received $10,000. Chess Records paid its artists in Cadillacs, as the movie Cadillac Records shows. Etta earned money through the live performances, and she was only concerned with continuing to finance her raging drug habit. In 1964, Etta's manager was sent to prison for pushing drugs. Some of the hits she recorded during this time included In the Basement. She worked with Muscle, Muscle Shoals musicians of Muscle Shoals, Alabama. She recorded Tell Mama, which had been written by Clarence Carter. She co-wrote I'd Rather Go Blind with a prisoner she met named Ellington Jordan. Trying to protect herself from having to pay high taxes, or so she thought, she allowed her then-boyfriend, Billy Foster, to take the credit for co-writing the song. Billy Foster fathered Etta's son, Donto, in 1968. I'd Rather Go Blind has been recorded by numerous artists. Rod Stewart has probably the best-known cover of the song. Sidney Youngblood did a very innovative remake in 1990. Etta's true drug of choice was heroin. She had started using methadone to help her with her heroin addiction, but ended up mixing heroin and methadone and just, you know, taking both of them. In 1969, she married artist Mills, who tried to help her get off drugs. He ended up taking the rap for Etta when she was found with drugs. Artist was sentenced to 10 years, which he served. He served all 10 years. While Artist was serving time for Etta, she got a junkie-turned-therapist named Sam Dennis to, uh, you know, she started dating him and she eventually gave birth to Sam's son, Sameto, in 1976. Over the years, Etta was very candid about her addiction and the places that it led her to. She told a story about how she and singer Esther Phillips cooked up a cash-checking scheme to feed their drug habits. They got the money from the scheme, took the money, bought the drugs, then off to the next hotel to do the scheme again. This kept them with a stash of drugs that lasted for weeks. Etta got caught because she, not Esther, had the checkbook. This led to Etta doing a tiny bid on Rikers Island. She got out and her singing career continued and so did the madness. Another story involved Etta, Esther, and a drag queen friend of theirs getting busted 
in Indianapolis by the exact same cops who busted Ray Charles. Again, Esther avoided capture. That girl really knew how to not get caught. Etta and the other friend were thrown in jail. Sadly, the drag queen eventually overdosed and died. Etta didn't wake up immediately, though. She didn't really realize that her life was out of control when she was going to get heroin on the condition that she gave oral sex to an 80-something-year-old man. Something had to give. She spent time in Tarzana Clinic. This helped Etta to overcome her addiction to heroin, but then she got hooked on cocaine. Time spent at the Betty Ford Clinic helped her put that to an end. She had also spent time at a psychiatric hospital. Once she conquered her drug addiction, she put on an inordinate amount of weight, and she opted to undergo gastric bypass surgery and ended up looking svelte and glamorous. Etta James was of the opinion that singer Janis Joplin had copied her singing style, and I'm sure she did. Etta went on to record two albums with Janis Joplin's producer, Gabriel Meckler. The self-titled Etta James, which was released in 1973 and 1974, has come a little closer. In 1976, she recorded another live album, Etta is Better Than Ever. She worked as an opening act for the Rolling Stones to promote the album. She drew raves for the 1977 appearance at the Montreux Jazz Festival. 1978 brought the rock influence deep in the night. Etta James produced numerous more albums over the next few decades. She even covered artists as diverse as Billie Holiday and Prince. Accolades began to roll in. In 1993, Etta James was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She accepted the honor eloquently. She was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1999. In 2001, she was inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame. Rolling Stone magazine placed Etta James at number 22 as one of the 100 greatest singers of all time and she ranked 62 in the list of the 100 greatest artists of all time. Clearly, Etta James is one of the most important and influential artists of all time. Brandy, Christina Aguilera, Diana Ross, Janis Joplin, who we mentioned, Josh Stone, and many, many others were directly influenced by her sound, style, and unique spirit. In an interesting aside, Etta James was portrayed by Beyonce Knowles in the film Cadillac Records. Beyonce performed Etta James' signature song, At Last, at an inaugural party for President Barack Obama. She sang it during Barack and Michelle's first dance as first couple. She did a good job, just as she had done a good job in the movie. But Miss Etta, a.k.a. Miss Peaches, hit the roof. She was livid. She basically said that that woman, meaning Beyonce, had no business singing her song that she's been singing since forever and that she couldn't stand Beyonce. She even came for President Obama making fun of his ears and saying that he wasn't her president. Translation, she was hurt. She was still alive, obviously, at this time, and she was still capable of singing at last. And she was understandably hurt, insulted, and felt betrayed that, you know, they wouldn't even ask her to sing the song. I can understand that. Now, her family 
tried to smooth it over. They blamed Edda's comments on a urinary tract infection or a dementia. I don't know if Edda received any type of an apology or not, <clears throat> but she accepted an offer to perform at last on Dancing with the Stars, which she did. I believe that uh, was the last time Edda James performed on television. Edda James, who was born James Edda Hawkins, died on January 20th, 2012, just five days before her 74th birthday. She had been battling dementia and leukemia, and there had been a dispute between her husband and her two sons over her money and who should be in charge of her. I believe her husband, Artist Mills, maintained power of attorney. But when she died, she did leave behind her husband of more than 30 years, two sons, four grandchildren, and a very, very interesting legacy. Ironically, Johnny Otis, the man who discovered Edda James and numerous other soul legends and gave her her stage name, passed away on January 17, 2012, three days before Edda's passing. It was truly the end of an era, a full circle type of moment. Anyway, that is the saga of Miss Peaches, Etta James. And this is Remembering the Misremembered. I'm Monica, and I will see you soon. Hello, hello, hello. This is Monica, and this is Remembering the Misremembered. And today we are going to talk about a woman who is probably not as forgotten as some of the other people that I talk about. Um, I don't think she's forgotten at all. Um, she's only been dead uh, less than a decade. And um, she really had a very, very prolific career. I'm talking about Etta James. This is Etta James, the saga of Miss Peaches. Etta James was one of the most prolific singers to ever stand behind a microphone. Gospel, R&B, doo-wop, soul, jazz, you name it, and Etta sang it with devastating passion, verve, and most of all with soul. Despite living a life mired in drug addiction, which led to her ill health and trouble with the law, Etta James miraculously managed to have a career spanning the mid-1950s until well into the 2000s. Really, the 2010s. As far as black women with top 10 hits during that time period, only Dinah Washington and Ruth Brown eclipsed her. Of course, Dinah Washington died in 1963. Etta James was a true soul survivor who lived long enough to relay her personal narrative, penning Rage to Survive, one of the greatest, most candid, and raw autobiographies ever written, period. She was born James Etta Hawkins. I wonder where her mother got that name, James Etta. James Etta Hawkins, on January 25, 1938, to 14-year-old Dorothy Hawkins, a black teenager, and an unknown white man. James Etta always believed that her father was the legendary pool player, Rudolph Wanderon, also known as Minnesota Fats, but this was never proven. 
In fact, his widow has claimed that Fats was infertile due to prostate troubles and that there's no way he would have fathered a child and not taken care of her. But who really knows? Dorothy was rarely at home and spent a lot of time fraternizing with various men. James Etta nicknamed her mother the mystery lady because she was so often M.I.A. James Etta found herself living in a series of foster homes. The most impactful foster parents were Dorothy's friends James and Lulu, a.k.a. Sarge and Mama Lou. James Etta's music teacher, James Earl Hines, used to punch her in the chest to ensure that she sang properly from the diaphragm. James Etta's big, powerful voice was supposedly strengthened by being punched in the chest by this grown man as a little girl. Very unorthodox and highly disturbing. And her foster father, Sarge, was also abusive to her. He would get drunk, wake her up in the middle of the night, and force her to sing for his friends. If she didn't sing to his standards, she faced a beating. Of course, all of this caused psychological problems for her her whole life. She developed a bedwetting problem as a kid and anxiety about performing as an adult. Her foster mother, Mama Lou, died when James Zeta was 12. And I want to mention that uh, James Zeta was a musical prodigy. She started singing gospel from the age of five, and she was even on the radio as a little girl. So anyway... Dorothy and James Etta moved together to San Francisco in the Fillmore District. James Etta was a child who would run away from home. More than once, uh, Etta James, who she later became, referred to herself as a juvenile delinquent. She drank hard, ditched school, and ran with the gang. The gang became a singing group called the Creolettes, allegedly because of them all being light-skinned, but according to pictures, James Etta was the only light-skinned one. One day, one of the girls met the godfather of rhythm and blues himself, Johnny Otis, Otis, and she told James Etta, who was skeptical. That is, until James Etta talked to Johnny Otis herself on the phone. Johnny arranged for the Creoettes to catch a cab and audition for him at a hotel. They sang three songs, and he was impressed. He asked her how old she was. Eighteen, she lied. He saw through it and told her to go home and get written permission from her mother to record, travel, etc. James Etta went home, wrote the letter of permission herself, packed her bags, and prepared to record and go on the road. Johnny Otis took the girls under his wing. He changed the Creolette's name to the Peaches, and Peaches was James Etta's nickname. He also transposed James Etta's name to the more palatable Etta James. Johnny recruited Etta and the girls to record an answer record to Hank Ballard's Work With Me Annie. Eddie recorded a song, Etta recorded a song called The Wallflower, which was released in 1955 and featured vocals from Richard Berry, who was the male voice on the song. Etta was credited as the song's co-writer. The song's name had been changed from Roll With Me Henry because that title sounded too sexually explicit. It reached the top of the rhythm and blues charts. The Peaches were signed to Modern Records, and the success of the song opened the door for them to be hired as Little Richard's opening act. Predictably, the song 
brought crossover drama into their lives when pop singer Georgia Gibson did a cover record. It, of course, went to number one pop, and that infuriated Etta. Etta lived with Johnny Otis's family for a time. She was making $10 per performance then, and he placed her $14,000 in royalties from the success of The Wallflower in a trust until Etta was 21. At some point, Etta performed on a bill with Elvis at a Memphis club, and she talked about how great his manners were. Etta sang backup vocals on Jesse Belvin's Good Night My Love, Pleasant Dreams. She worked with Alan Toussaint and the top-notch New Orleans musicians of that time. She recorded an answer to Muddy Waters' I Am A Woman. Or I'm a, his, his song was I'm A Man, and her song was W-O-M-A-N. And she also sang a gospel song with Sister Rosetta Thorpe called Strange Things Happening. She also recorded a song called The Pickup, so she was very busy in these years. Etta left the Peaches and achieved a hit record with Good Rockin' Daddy. She was signed to Chess Records in 1960. She sang backup on the Chuck Berry songs Almost Grown and Back in the USA. She duetted with her boyfriend Moon Glow and Marvin Gaye discoverer Harvey Fuqua on If I Can't Have You and Spoonful. And speaking of boyfriends, Etta also reportedly dated blues man B.B. King when she was 16 and he was in his 20s. The founder of Chess Records, Leonard Chess, actually had a vision for Etta James. He clearly wanted to build Etta as a classic chanteuse. Her voice was often surrounded by lush orchestration. My Dearest Darling is the first song that Etta recorded in that vein. It went to number five R&B. In late 1960, Etta James released her debut album, At Last. By early 1961, Etta released the single, which became her signature song. When most people hear the name Etta James, At Last is the first song that comes to mind. Surprisingly, Etta's version of At Last hit number two R&B and number 47 pop. So it wasn't this huge smash right out of the gate. But it goes to show that, yes, the charts are important <clears throat> when a song first comes out, but it's no indication of a song's longevity and how memorable it will be in the long run. She followed that song up with Trust Me. The last album also features I Just Want to Make Love to You and A Sunday Kind of Love. These two songs became classics as well. The album is extremely diverse, with Etta singing a number of different genres, R&B, jazz, doo-wop, the blues. And there was a sophomore album, the second time around, which was released that same year, 1960. More hits followed, including Something's Got a Hold on Me, number four R&B and top 40 pop, and Stop the Wedding, number six on the R&B chart. A couple years later, a live album was released with the song Pushover. Etta had started taking hard drugs in the early 1960s, and this affected her reliability. She was also crushed by the passing of Leonard Chess. She spent many years at Chess Records, but only received $10,000. Chess Records paid its artists in Cadillacs, as the movie Cadillac Records shows. Etta earned money through the live performances, and she was only concerned with continuing to finance her raging drug habit. In 1964, Etta's manager was sent to prison for pushing drugs. Some of the hits she recorded during this time included In the Basement, 
She worked with Muscle, Muscle Shoals musicians of Muscle Shoals, Alabama. She recorded Tell Mama, which had been written by Clarence Carter. She co-wrote I'd Rather Go Blind with a prisoner she met named Ellington Jordan. Trying to protect herself from having to pay high taxes, or so she thought, she allowed her then-boyfriend, Billy Foster, to take the credit for co-writing the song. Billy Foster fathered Etta's son, Donto, in 1968. I'd Rather Go Blind has been recorded by numerous artists. Rod Stewart has probably the best-known cover of the song. Sidney Youngblood did a very innovative remake in 1990. Etta's true drug of choice was heroin. She had started using methadone to help her with her heroin addiction, but ended up mixing heroin and methadone and just, you know, taking both of them. In 1969, she married artist Mills, who tried to help her get off drugs. He ended up taking the rap for Etta when she was found with drugs. Artist was sentenced to 10 years, which he served. He served all 10 years. While Artist was serving time for Etta, she got a junkie-turned-therapist named Sam Dennis to, uh, you know, she started dating him, and she eventually gave birth to Sam's son, Sameto, in 1976. Over the years, Etta was very candid about her addiction and the places that it led her to. She told a story about how she and singer Esther Phillips cooked up a cash-checking scheme to feed their drug habits. They got the money from the scheme, took the money, bought the drugs, then off to the next hotel to do the scheme again. This kept them with a stash of drugs that lasted for weeks. Etta got caught because she, not Esther, had the checkbook. This led to Etta doing a tiny bid on Rikers Island. She got out and her singing career continued and so did the madness. Another story involved Etta, Esther, and a drag queen friend of theirs getting busted in Indianapolis by the exact same cops who busted Ray Charles. Again, Esther avoided capture. That girl really knew how to not get caught. Etta and the other friend were thrown in jail. Sadly, the drag queen eventually overdosed and died. Etta didn't wake up immediately though. She didn't really realize that her life was out of control when she was going to get heroin on the condition that she gave oral sex to an 80-something-year-old man. Something had to give. She spent time in Tarzana Clinic. This helped Etta to overcome her addiction to heroin, but then she got hooked on cocaine. Time spent at the Betty Ford Clinic helped her put that to an end. She had also spent time at a psychiatric hospital. Once she conquered her drug addiction, she put on an inordinate amount of weight and she opted to undergo gastric bypass surgery and ended up looking svelte and glamorous. Etta James was of the opinion that singer Janis Joplin had copied her singing style and I'm sure she did. Etta went on to record two albums with Janis Joplin's producer, Gabriel Meckler. The self-titled Etta James, which was released in 1973 and 1974, has come a little closer. In 1976, she recorded another live album, Etta is Better Than Ever. She worked as an opening act for the Rolling Stones to promote the album. She drew raves for the 1977 appearance at the Montreux Jazz Festival. 1978 brought the rock influence deep in the night. 
Etta James produced numerous more albums over the next few decades. She even covered artists as diverse as Billie Holiday and Prince. Accolades began to roll in. In 1993, Etta James was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She accepted the honor eloquently. She was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1999. In 2001, she was inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame. Rolling Stone magazine placed Etta James at number 22 as one of the 100 greatest singers of all time. And she ranked 62 in the list of the 100 greatest artists of all time. Clearly, Etta James is one of the most important and influential artists of all time. Brandy, Christina Aguilera, Diana Ross, Janis Joplin, who we mentioned, Josh Stone, and many, many others were directly influenced by her sound, style, and unique spirit. In an interesting aside, Etta James was portrayed by Beyonce Knowles in the film Cadillac Records. Beyonce performed Etta James' signature song, At Last, at an inaugural party for President Barack Obama. She sang it during Barack and Michelle's first dance as first couple. She did a good job, just as she had done a good job in the movie. But Miss Etta, a.k.a. Miss Peaches, hit the roof. She was livid. She basically said that that woman, meaning Beyonce, had no business singing her song that she's been singing since forever, and that she couldn't stand Beyonce. She even came for President Obama making fun of his ears and saying that he wasn't her president. Translation, she was hurt. She was still alive, obviously, at this time, and she was still capable of singing at last. And she was understandably hurt, insulted, and felt betrayed that, you know, they wouldn't even ask her to sing the song. I can understand that. Now, her family tried to smooth it over. They blamed Edda's comments on a urinary tract infection or dementia. I don't know if Etta received any type of an apology or not, <clears throat> but she accepted an offer to perform at last on Dancing with the Stars, which she did. I believe that uh, was the last time Etta James performed on television. Etta James, who was born James Etta Hawkins, died on January 20th, 2012, just five days before her 74th birthday. She had been battling dementia and leukemia, and there had been a dispute between her husband and her two sons over her money and who should be in charge of her. I believe her husband, Artis Mills, maintained power of attorney. But when she died, she did leave behind her husband of more than 30 years, two sons, four grandchildren, and a very, very interesting legacy. Ironically, Johnny Otis, the man who discovered Etta James and numerous other soul legends and gave her her stage name, passed away on January 17, 2012, three days before Etta's passing. It was truly the end of an era, a full circle type of moment. Anyway, that is the saga of Miss Peaches, Etta James. And this is Remembering the Misremembered. I'm Monica and I will see you soon. Hello, hello, hello. This is Monica, 
and this is Remembering the Misremembered. And today we are going to talk about a woman who is probably not as forgotten as some of the other people that I talk about. Um, I don't think she's forgotten at all. Um, she's only been dead uh, less than a decade. And um, she really had a very, very prolific career. I'm talking about Etta James. This is Etta James, the saga of Miss Peaches. Etta James was one of the most prolific singers to ever stand behind a microphone. Gospel, R&B, doo-wop, soul, jazz, you name it, and Etta sang it with devastating passion, verve, and most of all with soul. Despite living a life mired in drug addiction, which led to her ill health and trouble with the law, Etta James miraculously managed to have a career spanning the mid-1950s until well into the 2000s. Really the 2010s. As far as black women with top 10 hits during that time period, only Dinah Washington and Ruth Brown eclipsed her. Of course, Dinah Washington died in 1963. Etta James was a true soul survivor who lived long enough to relay her personal narrative, penning Rage to Survive, one of the greatest, most candid, and raw autobiographies ever written, period. She was born James Etta Hawkins. I wonder where her mother got that name, James Etta. James Etta Hawkins, on January 25th, 1938, to 14-year-old Dorothy Hawkins, a black teenager, and an unknown white man. James Etta always believed that her father was the legendary pool player, Rudolph Wanderon, also known as Minnesota Fats, but this was never proven. In fact, his widow has claimed that Fats was infertile due to prostate troubles and that there's no way he would have fathered a child and not taken care of her. But who really knows? Dorothy was rarely at home and spent a lot of time fraternizing with various men. James Etta nicknamed her mother the Mystery Lady because she was so often M.I.A. James Etta found herself living in a series of foster homes. The most impactful foster parents were Dorothy's friends James and Lulu, a.k.a. Sarge and Mama Lou. James Etta's music teacher, James Earl Hines, used to punch her in the chest to ensure that she sang properly from the diaphragm. James Etta's big, powerful voice was supposedly strengthened by being punched in the chest by this grown man as a little girl. Very unorthodox and highly disturbing. And her foster father, Sarge, was also abusive to her. He would get drunk, wake her up in the middle of the night, and force her to sing for his friends. If she didn't sing to his standards, she faced a beating. Of course, all of this caused psychological problems for her her whole life. She developed a bedwetting problem as a kid and anxiety about performing as an adult. Her foster mother, Mama Lou, died when James Etta was 12. And I want to mention that uh, James Etta was a musical prodigy. She started singing gospel from the age of five, and she was even on the radio as a little girl. So anyway... Dorothy and James Etta moved together to San Francisco in the Fillmore District. James Etta was a child who would run away from home. 
more than once, uh, Etta James, who she later became, referred to herself as a juvenile delinquent. She drank hard, ditched school, and ran with the gang. The gang became a singing group called the Creolettes, allegedly because of them all being light-skinned, but according to pictures, James Etta was the only light-skinned one. One day, one of the girls met the godfather of rhythm and blues himself, Johnny Otis. Otis, and she told James Etta, who was skeptical. That is, until James Etta talked to Johnny Otis herself on the phone. Johnny arranged for the Creoettes to catch a cab and audition for him at a hotel. They sang three songs, and he was impressed. He asked her how old she was. Eighteen, she lied. He saw through it and told her to go home and get written permission from her mother to record, travel, etc., James Etta went home, wrote the letter of permission herself, packed her bags, and prepared to record and go on the road. Johnny Otis took the girls under his wing. He changed the Creolette's name to the Peaches, and Peaches was James Etta's nickname. He also transposed James Etta's name to the more palatable Etta James. Johnny recruited Etta and the girls to record an answer record, to Hank Ballard's Work With Me Annie. Eddie recorded a song, Etta recorded a song called The Wallflower, which was released in 1955 and featured vocals from Richard Berry, who was the male voice on the song. Etta was credited as the song's co-writer. The song's name had been changed from Roll With Me Henry because that title sounded too sexually explicit. It reached the top of the rhythm and blues charts. The Peaches were signed to Modern Records, and the success of the song opened the door for them to be hired as Little Richard's opening act. Predictably, the song brought crossover drama into their lives when pop singer Georgia Gibson did a cover record. It, of course, went to number one pop, and that infuriated Etta. Etta lived with Johnny Otis's family for a time. She was making $10 per performance then and he placed her $14,000 in royalties from the success of The Wallflower in a trust until Etta was 21. At some point, Etta performed on a bill with Elvis at a Memphis club, and she talked about how great his manners were. Etta sang backup vocals on Jesse Belvin's Good Night My Love, Pleasant Dreams. She worked with Alan Toussaint and the top-notch New Orleans musicians of that time. She recorded an answer to Muddy Waters' I Am A Woman. Or I'm a, his, his song was I'm A Man, and her song was W-O-M-A-N. And she also sang a gospel song with Sister Rosetta Thorpe called Strange Things Happening. She also recorded a song called The Pickup. So she was very busy in these years. Etta left the Peaches and achieved a hit record with Good Rockin' Daddy. She was signed to Chess Records in 1960. She sang backup on the Chuck Berry songs Almost Grown and Back in the USA. She duetted with her boyfriend Moonglow and Marvin Gaye discoverer Harvey Fuqua on If I Can't Have You and Spoonful. And speaking of boyfriends, Etta also reportedly dated blues man B.B. King when she was 16 and he was in his 20s. The founder of Chess Records, Leonard Chess, actually had a vision for Etta James. He clearly wanted to build Etta as a classic chanteuse. Her voice was often surrounded by lush orchestration. 
My Dearest Darling is the first song that Etta recorded in that vein. It went to number five R&B. In late 1960, Etta James released her debut album, At Last. By early 1961, Etta released the single, which became her signature song. When most people hear the name Etta James, At Last is the first song that comes to mind. Surprisingly, Etta's version of At Last hit number two R&B and number 47 pop. So it wasn't this huge smash right out of the gate. But it goes to show that, yes, the charts are important <clears throat> when a song first comes out. But it's no indication of a song's longevity and how memorable it will be in the long run. She followed that song up with Trust Me. The At Last album also features I Just Want to Make Love to You and A Sunday Kind of Love. These two songs became classics as well. The album is extremely diverse, with Etta singing a number of different genres. R&B, jazz, doo-wop, the blues. And there was a sophomore album, the second time around, which was released that same year, 1960. More hits followed, including Something's Got a Hold on Me, number four R&B and top 40 pop, and Stop the Wedding, number six on the R&B chart. A couple years later, a live album was released with the song Pushover. Etta had started taking hard drugs in the early 1960s, and this affected her reliability. She was also crushed by the passing of Leonard Chess. She spent many years at Chess Records, but only received $10,000. Chess Records paid its artists in Cadillacs, as the movie Cadillac Records shows. Etta earned money through the live performances and she was only concerned with continuing to finance her raging drug habit. In 1964, Etta's manager was sent to prison for pushing drugs. Some of the hits she recorded during this time included In the Basement. She worked with Muscle, Muscle Shoals musicians of Muscle Shoals, Alabama. She recorded Tell Mama, which had been written by Clarence Carter. She co-wrote I'd Rather Go Blind with a prisoner she met named Ellington Jordan. Trying to protect herself from having to pay high taxes, or so she thought, she allowed her then-boyfriend, Billy Foster, to take the credit for co-writing the song. Billy Foster fathered Etta's son, Donto, in 1968. I'd Rather Go Blind has been recorded by numerous artists. Rod Stewart has probably the best-known cover of the song. Sidney Youngblood did a very innovative remake in 1990. Etta's true drug of choice was heroin. She had started using methadone to help her with her heroin addiction, but ended up mixing heroin and methadone and just, you know, taking both of them. In 1969, she married artist Mills, who tried to help her get off drugs. He ended up taking the rap for Etta when she was found with drugs. Artist was sentenced to 10 years, which he served. He served all 10 years. While Artis was serving time for Etta, she got a junkie-turned-therapist named Sam Dennis to, uh, you know, she started dating him, and she eventually gave birth to Sam's son, Sameto, in 1976. Over the years, Etta was very candid about her addiction and the places that it led her to. She told a story about how she and singer Esther Phillips cooked up a cash-checking scheme to feed their drug habits. They got the money from the scheme, took the money, bought the drugs, then off to the next hotel to do the scheme again. This kept them with a stash of drugs that lasted for weeks. 
Etta got caught because she, not Esther, had the checkbook. This led to Etta doing a tiny bid on Rikers Island. She got out and her singing career continued and so did the madness. Another story involved Etta, Esther, and a drag queen friend of theirs getting busted in Indianapolis by the exact same cops who busted Ray Charles. Again, Esther avoided capture. That girl really knew how to not get caught. Etta and the other friend were thrown in jail. Sadly, the drag queen eventually overdosed and died. Etta didn't wake up immediately, though. She didn't really realize that her life was out of control when she was going to get heroin on the condition that she gave oral sex to an 80-something-year-old man. Something had to give. She spent time in Tarzana Clinic. This helped Etta to overcome her addiction to heroin, but then she got hooked on cocaine. Time spent at the Betty Ford Clinic helped her put that to an end. She had also spent time at a psychiatric hospital. Once she conquered her drug addiction, she put on an inordinate amount of weight, and she opted to undergo gastric bypass surgery and ended up looking svelte and glamorous. Etta James was of the opinion that singer Janis Joplin had copied her singing style, and I'm sure she did. Etta went on to record two albums with Janis Joplin's producer, Gabriel Meckler. The self-titled Etta James, which was released in 1973 and 1974, has come a little closer. In 1976, she recorded another live album, Etta is Better Than Ever. She worked as an opening act for the Rolling Stones to promote the album. She drew raves for the 1977 appearance at the Montreux Jazz Festival. 1978 brought the rock influence deep in the night. Etta James produced numerous more albums over the next few decades. She even covered artists as diverse as Billie Holiday and Prince. Accolades began to roll in. In 1993, Etta James was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She accepted the honor eloquently. She was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1999. In 2001, she was inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame. Rolling Stone magazine placed Etta James at number 22 as one of the 100 greatest singers of all time and she ranked 62 in the list of the 100 greatest artists of all time. Clearly, Etta James is one of the most important and influential artists of all time. Brandy, Christina Aguilera, Diana Ross, Janis Joplin, who we mentioned, Josh Stone, and many, many others were directly influenced by her sound, style, and unique spirit. In an interesting aside, Etta James was portrayed by Beyonce Knowles in the film Cadillac Records. Beyonce performed Etta James' signature song, At Last, at an inaugural party for President Barack Obama. She sang it during Barack and Michelle's first dance as first couple. She did a good job, just as she had done a good job in the movie. But Miss Etta, a.k.a. Miss Peaches, hit the roof. She was livid. She basically said that that woman, meaning Beyonce, had no business singing her song that she's been singing since forever and that she couldn't stand Beyonce. She even came for President Obama making fun of his ears and saying that he wasn't her president. Translation, she was hurt. 
she was still alive, obviously, at this time, and she was still capable of singing at last. And she was understandably hurt, insulted, and felt betrayed that, you know, they wouldn't even ask her to sing the song. I can understand that. Now, her family tried to smooth it over. They blamed Edda's comments on a urinary tract infection or a dementia. I don't know if Edda received any type of an apology or not, <clears throat> but she accepted an offer to perform at last on Dancing with the Stars, which she did. I believe that uh, was the last time Edda James performed on television. Edda James, who was born James Edda Hawkins, died on January 20th, 2012, just five days before her 74th birthday. She had been battling dementia and leukemia, and there had been a dispute between her husband and her two sons over her money and who should be in charge of her. I believe her husband, Artis Mills, maintained power of attorney. But when she died, she did leave behind her husband of more than 30 years, two sons, four grandchildren, and a very, very interesting legacy. Ironically, Johnny Otis, the man who discovered Etta James and numerous other soul legends and gave her her stage name, passed away on January 17, 2012, three days before Etta's passing. It was truly the end of an era, a full circle type of moment. Anyway, that is the saga of Miss Peaches, Etta James. And this is Remembering the Misremembered. I'm Monica, and I will see you soon. Hello, hello, hello. This is Monica, and this is Remembering the Misremembered. And today we are going to talk about a woman who is probably not as forgotten as some of the other people that I talk about. Um, I don't think she's forgotten at all. Um, she's only been dead uh, less than a decade. And um, she really had a very, very prolific career. I'm talking about Etta James. This is Etta James, the saga of Miss Peaches. Etta James was one of the most prolific singers to ever stand behind a microphone. Gospel, R&B, doo-wop, soul, jazz, you name it, and Etta sang it with devastating passion, verve, and most of all with soul. Despite living a life mired in drug addiction, which led to her ill health and trouble with the law, Etta James miraculously managed to have a career spanning the mid-1950s until well into the 2000s. Really the 2010s. As far as black women with top 10 hits during that time period, only Dinah Washington and Ruth Brown eclipsed her. Of course, Dinah Washington died in 1963. Etta James was a true soul survivor who lived long enough to relay her personal narrative, penning Rage to Survive, one of the greatest, most candid, and raw autobiographies ever written, period. She was born James Etta Hawkins. I wonder where her mother got that name, James Etta. James Etta Hawkins on January 25th, 1938, to 14-year-old Dorothy Hawkins, a black teenager, and an unknown white man. 
James Hatter always believed that her father was the legendary pool player, Rudolph Wanderon, also known as Minnesota Fats, but this was never proven. In fact, his widow has claimed that Fats was infertile due to prostate troubles and that there's no way he would have fathered a child and not taken care of her. But who really knows? Dorothy was rarely at home and spent a lot of time fraternizing with various men. James Etta nicknamed her mother the Mystery Lady because she was so often M.I.A. James Etta found herself living in a series of foster homes. The most impactful foster parents were Dorothy's friends James and Lulu, a.k.a. Sarge and Mama Lou. James Etta's music teacher, James Earl Hines, used to punch her in the chest to ensure that she sang properly from the diaphragm. James Etta's big, powerful voice was supposedly strengthened by being punched in the chest by this grown man as a little girl. Very unorthodox and highly disturbing. And her foster father, Sarge, was also abusive to her. He would get drunk, wake her up in the middle of the night, and force her to sing for his friends. If she didn't sing to his standards, she faced a beating. Of course, all of this caused psychological problems for her her whole life. She developed a bedwetting problem as a kid and anxiety about performing as an adult. Her foster mother, Mama Lou, died when James Etta was 12. And I want to mention that uh, James Etta was a musical prodigy. She started singing gospel from the age of five, and she was even on the radio as a little girl. So anyway... Dorothy and James Etta moved together to San Francisco in the Fillmore District. James Etta was a child who would run away from home. More than once, uh, Etta James, who she later became, referred to herself as a juvenile delinquent. She drank hard, ditched school, and ran with the gang. The gang became a singing group called the Creolettes, allegedly because of them all being light-skinned, but according to pictures, James Etta was the only light-skinned one. One day, one of the girls met the godfather of rhythm and blues himself, Johnny Otis, Otis, and she told James Etta, who was skeptical. That is, until James Etta talked to Johnny Otis herself on the phone. Johnny arranged for the Creoettes to catch a cab and audition for him at a hotel. They sang three songs, and he was impressed. He asked her how old she was. Eighteen, she lied. He saw through it and told her to go home and get written permission from her mother to record, travel, etc. James Etta went home, wrote the letter of permission herself, packed her bags, and prepared to record and go on the road. Johnny Otis took the girls under his wing. He changed the Creolette's name to the Peaches, and Peaches was James Etta's nickname. He also transposed James Etta's name to the more palatable Etta James. Johnny recruited Etta and the girls to record an answer record to Hank Ballard's Work With Me Annie. Eddie recorded a song, Etta recorded a song called The Wallflower, which was released in 1955 and featured vocals from Richard Berry, who was the male voice on the song. Etta was credited as the song's co-writer. The song's name had been changed from Roll With Me Henry because that title sounded too sexually explicit. It reached the top of the rhythm and blues charts. 
The Peaches were signed to Modern Records, and the success of the song opened the door for them to be hired as Little Richard's opening act. Predictably, the song brought crossover drama into their lives when pop singer Georgia Gibson did a cover record. It, of course, went to number one pop, and that infuriated Etta. Etta lived with Johnny Otis's family for a time. She was making $10 per performance then, and he placed her $14,000 in royalties from the success of The Wallflower in a trust until Etta was 21. At some point, Etta performed on a bill with Elvis at a Memphis club, and she talked about how great his manners were. Etta sang backup vocals on Jesse Belvin's Good Night My Love, Pleasant Dreams. She worked with Alan Toussaint and the top-notch New Orleans musicians of that time. She recorded an answer to Muddy Waters' I Am A Woman. Or I'm a, his, his song was I'm A Man, and her song was W-O-M-A-N. And she also sang a gospel song with Sister Rosetta Thorpe called Strange Things Happening. She also recorded a song called The Pickup, so she was very busy in these years. Etta left the Peaches and achieved a hit record with Good Rockin' Daddy. She was signed to Chess Records in 1960. She sang backup on the Chuck Berry songs Almost Grown and Back in the USA. She duetted with her boyfriend Moonglow and Marvin Gaye discoverer Harvey Fuqua on If I Can't Have You and Spoonful. And speaking of boyfriends, Etta also reportedly dated blues man B.B. King when she was 16 and he was in his 20s. The founder of Chess Records, Leonard Chess, actually had a vision for Etta James. He clearly wanted to build Etta as a classic chanteuse. Her voice was often surrounded by lush orchestration. My Dearest Darling is the first song that Etta recorded in that vein. It went to number five R&B. In late 1960, Etta James released her debut album, At Last. By early 1961, Etta released the single, which became her signature song. When most people hear the name Etta James, At Last is the first song that comes to mind. Surprisingly, Etta's version of At Last hit number two R&B and number 47 pop. So it wasn't this huge smash right out of the gate. But it goes to show that, yes, the charts are important <clears throat> when a song first comes out, but it's no indication of a song's longevity and how memorable it will be in the long run. She followed that song up with Trust Me. The last album also features I Just Want to Make Love to You and A Sunday Kind of Love. These two songs became classics as well. The album is extremely diverse, with Etta singing a number of different genres, R&B, jazz, doo-wop, the blues, and there was a sophomore album, the second time around, which was released that same year, 1960. More hits followed, including Something's Got a Hold on Me, number four R&B and top 40 pop, and Stop the Wedding, number six on the R&B chart. A couple years later, a live album was released with the song Pushover. Etta had started taking hard drugs in the early 1960s, and this affected her reliability. She was also crushed by the passing of Leonard Chess. She spent many years at Chess Records but only received $10,000. Chess Records paid its artists in Cadillacs, as the movie Cadillac Records shows. Etta earned money through the live performances, 
and she was only concerned with continuing to finance her raging drug habit. In 1964, Etta's manager was sent to prison for pushing drugs. Some of the hits she recorded during this time included in the basement. She worked with Muscle, Muscle Shoals musicians of Muscle Shoals, Alabama. She recorded Tell Mama, which had been written by Clarence Carter. She co-wrote I'd Rather Go Blind with a prisoner she met named Ellington Jordan. Trying to protect herself from having to pay high taxes, or so she thought, she allowed her then-boyfriend, Billy Foster, to take the credit for co-writing the song. Billy Foster fathered Etta's son, Donto, in 1968. I'd Rather Go Blind has been recorded by numerous artists. Rod Stewart has probably the best-known cover of the song. Sidney Youngblood did a very innovative remake in 1990. Etta's true drug of choice was heroin. She had started using methadone to help her with her heroin addiction, but ended up mixing heroin and methadone and just, you know, taking both of them. In 1969, she married artist Mills, who tried to help her get off drugs. He ended up taking the rap for Etta when she was found with drugs. Artist was sentenced to 10 years, which he served. He served all 10 years. While Artist was serving time for Etta, she got a junkie turned therapist named Sam Dennis to, uh, you know, she started dating him. And she eventually gave birth to Sam's son, Sameto, in 1976. Over the years, Etta was very candid about her addiction and the places that it led her to. She told a story about how she and singer Esther Phillips cooked up a cash-checking scheme to feed their drug habits. They got the money from the scheme, took the money, bought the drugs, then off to the next hotel to do the scheme again. This kept them with a stash of drugs that lasted for weeks. Etta got caught because she, not Esther, had the checkbook. This led to Etta doing a tiny bid on Rikers Island. She got out and her singing career continued, and so did the madness. Another story involved Etta, Esther, and a drag queen friend of theirs getting busted in Indianapolis by the exact same cops who busted Ray Charles. Again, Esther avoided capture. That girl really knew how to not get caught. Etta and the other friend were thrown in jail. Sadly, the drag queen eventually overdosed and died. Etta didn't wake up immediately, though. She didn't really realize that her life was out of control when she was going to get heroin on the condition that she gave oral sex to an 80-something-year-old man. Something had to give. She spent time in Tarzana Clinic. This helped Etta to overcome her addiction to heroin, but then she got hooked on cocaine. Time spent at the Betty Ford Clinic helped her put that to an end. She had also spent time at a psychiatric hospital. Once she conquered her drug addiction, she put on an inordinate amount of weight, and she opted to undergo gastric bypass surgery and ended up looking svelte and glamorous. Etta James was of the opinion that singer Janis Joplin had copied her singing style, and I'm sure she did. Etta went on to record two albums with Janis Joplin's producer, Gabriel Meckler. The self-titled Etta James, which was released in 1973 and 1974, has come a little closer. In 1976, she recorded another live album, Etta is Better Than Ever. She worked as an opening act for the Rolling Stones to promote the album. 
She drew raves for the 1977 appearance at the Montreux Jazz Festival. 1978 brought the rock influence deep in the night. Hedda James produced numerous more albums over the next few decades. She even covered artists as diverse as Billie Holiday and Prince. Accolades began to roll in. In 1993, Hedda James was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. She accepted the honor eloquently. She was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1999. In 2001, she was inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame. Rolling Stone magazine placed Etta James at number 22 as one of the 100 greatest singers of all time. And she ranked 62 in the list of the 100 greatest artists of all time. Clearly, Etta James is one of the most important and influential artists of all time. Brandy, Christina Aguilera, Diana Ross, Janis Joplin, who we mentioned, Josh Stone, and many, many others were directly influenced by her sound, style, and unique spirit. In an interesting aside, Etta James was portrayed by Beyonce Knowles in the film Cadillac Records. Beyonce performed Etta James' signature song, At Last, at an inaugural party for President Barack Obama. She sang it during Barack and Michelle's first dance as first couple. She did a good job, just as she had done a good job in the movie. But Miss Etta, a.k.a. Miss Peaches, hit the roof. She was livid. She basically said that that woman, meaning Beyonce, had no business singing her song that she's been singing since forever and that she couldn't stand Beyonce. She even came for President Obama making fun of his ears and saying that he wasn't her president. Translation, she was hurt. She was still alive, obviously, at this time, and she was still capable of singing at last. And she was understandably hurt, insulted, and felt betrayed that, you know, they wouldn't even ask her to sing the song. I can understand that. Now, her family tried to smooth it over. They blamed Edda's comments on a urinary tract infection or dementia. I don't know if Edda received any type of an apology or not, <clears throat> but she accepted an offer to perform at last on Dancing with the Stars, which she did. I believe that uh, was the last time Edda James performed on television. Edda James, who was born James Edda Hawkins, died on January 20th, 2012, just five days before her 74th birthday. She had been battling dementia and leukemia, and there had been a dispute between her husband and her two sons over her money and who should be in charge of her. I believe her husband, Artist Mills, maintained power of attorney. But when she died, she did leave behind her husband of more than 30 years, two sons, four grandchildren, and a very, very interesting legacy. Ironically, Johnny Otis, the man who discovered Etta James and numerous other soul legends and gave her her stage name, passed away on January 17, 2012, three days before Etta's passing. It was truly the end of an era, a full circle type of moment. Anyway, that is the saga of Miss Peaches, Etta James. And this is Remembering the Misremembered. I'm Monica, and I will see you soon.